This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only David Bromberg. David, you're having what is billed as your final concert April 10th at the Beacon. How and why is it your final show? Well, um, I'm, uh, I'm 78, and there's a lot of parts about touring that are hard on this 78-year-old body. Um, and so I, I, I felt I kind of had to stop. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've always said I'm not the one and only David Bromberg. There were seven David Brombergs before me. You know, you know, in this business, how do you get in the business? You buy your way in. And I didn't have a lot of money, so all I could buy was David Bromberg. And now that I've had it for a while, it's uh, not worth anything anymore. I couldn't sell it. <laughs> okay. Are you known for your sense of humor? We've never talked before. Oh, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if I'm known for. I, I I don't know if I'm known at all. I I think on the whole, I I've remained anonymous. I wouldn't say that's the case because I certainly remember when your first album came out in Columbia with the white cover, etc. Let's get back to the show, but I want to talk specifically about you essentially parking your career to get into the violin business. Tell me about that decision. Well, um, I got burnt out. Um, but now, bear in mind, I never said I was smart. And I I didn't figure it was burnout. I thought I could never burn out. Um, I, I thought maybe I was really wrong and that I shouldn't be doing it at all. Um, I didn't want to be one of these guys who drags himself on stage and does a bad impression of what he remembers he used to do. Uh, and I was burnt out. Really, if uh, if I'd taken a break for six or nine months uh, and come back, it would have been fine. 
Uh, I took 22 years instead uh, because I found a different life for myself. Okay, but very specifically, how did you come to the conclusion? Because this is a business that most people never stop, never give up. How did I come to the conclusion? Well, I don't know how to answer that. Uh, it 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 manifested itself. It, it, what are you doing doing this if uh, if it doesn't feed whatever it fed before? And uh, <clears throat> I I was doing a show. First, I should explain to you that I've never had a set list. Uh, I just think of the tune I want to play, and I play it. And I was doing a show in New Jersey, and uh, I couldn't think of anything I wanted to play. And the truth is, I didn't want to play. And when I confronted that, it told me I should be stopping. Okay. You had that gig in New Jersey. In retrospect, did you have hints this was going to happen? Or is it like this? Just this one show hit you. Um, I didn't really have hints, uh, but I should let you know that I'm not a very observant human, uh, and and things that would point uh, certain conclusions out to other people, uh, I blithely let fly by. So I can't recall any other hints. Tell me more about not being an observant person. Oh boy, um, th it, people will sit, will put one and one together and get two, and and I don't see one or one. Um, it's uh, difficult to explain beyond that. Well, is this something that has haunted you your whole life, or are these just on big decisions? No, this is something that's uh, haunted me my whole life, and. Uh, uh, I have a therapist, so I'm not going to get into it with you. <laughs> okay. You're a therapist. Have you always been in therapy, or is that something recent? Um, I was in therapy when I lived in Chicago, and uh, then I moved to Wilmington, Delaware. And I, I, I was only for the briefest period found a, a therapist in, in Philadelphia, but uh, it, it wasn't going anywhere, and so recently I've started again. So there's there's been a basically a twenty year, twenty two year gap uh, f between me having any serious therapy. Well, it's very hard as someone who's in therapy for a long time and to this day. It's very hard to find a good therapist, and the more you know, the harder it is. How'd you find one? I had uh, uh, a friend who I trust who has always referred me to the best doctors, refer me to a therapist who couldn't take me on but recommended another therapist, and I called that therapist, and she's really good. And is there any issue of medication? Yeah, I have to find a, a psychiatrist who will uh, prescribe because I, I've been taking uh, antidepressant drugs now for a very long time. And I'm not sure that's uh, the right thing because depression really jumped on me recently. Really? Can you tell me more about that? No. Okay. Uh, so, was this something, you know, it's funny because Bruce Springsteen mentioned, I believe in his book, that he was on antidepressants. 
And for someone, I'm a little bit younger than you, but not that much. I'm 70. And 60 really fucked me up. And I just turned 70 recently. And it's very disorienting because like when you're 60, you realize everything you've been told is basically bullshit. Like if you find out, you don't have to buy this cereal. You don't have to go to see that movie. If it's good, you'll find out. And when you're 70, you realize, no, wait a second. What, what was important to begin with? It, it is depressing. Well, yeah. Um, I have a lot of remnants of uh, a rather peculiar childhood. And uh, I think that's responsible for, uh, for the therapy. My father was a psychiatrist. Really? They say that shrinks have the most screwed up kids. Yeah, well, I think that may be true. I, uh, I've heard it said that doctors always resemble uh, uh, their specialty. That is that uh, uh, pediatricians are kind of childish and, you know, like that. But my dad, um, my dad became a psychiatrist for uh, reasons because he was raised, his mother was a monster. Um, a monster? That's that's pretty definitive. Since she was your grandmother, why was she a monster? Oh boy, my grandmother was the first ingenue of the Yiddish theater in Europe. Wow! Because because her father had the first touring group that performed in Yiddish. So she performed with Tomaszewski and all the greats. As a matter of fact, if the script called for infants, my father and Paul Muni were the two who uh, uh, were used uh, as, uh, as children. Um, so um, she was, uh, you know, I really don't want to get into bad-mouthing my family. She was difficult. She, she thought of herself and not much about other people. Was it a result of her being a diva, or was it just her personality? Beats me. Okay, so your mother's parents, obviously Yiddish theater in Europe, when and how did they get to America? Um, they got to America in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, um, so uh, my father was beginning to grow. Uh, the folks being a, uh, decided that my grandmother was too old to be an ingenue, um, so she gave gave it up entirely. She didn't want to be anything else. She was the ingenue, and um, my folks came with their parents. Uh, so both of your parents were, as we say, born in the old country. Not my mom. My mom was actually born in the old country, Brooklyn. <laughs> Okay, so how did your parents meet? I believe they met because my maternal grandfather uh, was, uh, he was a very interesting man. He was a poet and a businessman, a thoroughly honest socialist, and a politician. And he was extremely popular. Um, 
part of it, I think, is due to the fact that he was painfully honest. I, I mean, he was a socialist, uh, and when he died, he left his wife penniless because it, if somebody needed money and he had it, he'd give it. So he basically gave away everything. Um, but he was a great man. As a matter of fact, his funeral was, to this day, the biggest in the history of New York City. If you read any book about uh, Fiorello LaGuardia, it always mentions him and usually will mention that that uh, funeral, uh, which went through all five boroughs, and the police report was 100,000 people. And what was his name? Baruch Charney Vladek. Okay, so then your, so your, my your father, father was living in, where when he meets your mother? He's living in the States. Uh, no, in I mean Brooklyn. in Brooklyn? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and he was a, one of many people who really admired Vladek, my maternal, and that's how he and my mom met. Okay, and how many kids in the family? In, in which family? In your family, siblings. Three. I have two. I have a brother and a sister. And where are you in the hierarchy? Middle. As am I. I heard that coming. Okay, so what do your <laughs> what what do your brother and sister do? What how do you know what path do they end up taking? My brother is now retired, uh, um, but he was a a. a community uh a community service guy i mean like oh, he had the same job more or less as, as obama uh um he served the various communities and uh my sister was an artist but she became a scientist uh through an a ver listen nothing in my family really goes straight ahead there there's just funny stuff she was at a cocktail party and she was talking with somebody, and she started to talk about memory, and uh, um, there was another thing that she uh, was, because she there were two topics she loved, and my father got the Scientific American, and she would read it to find out her favorite topics. So she was talking to this woman, and she knew a fantastic amount about a couple of subjects and nothing about the rest of science. So this woman was the director of, uh, she was the chief of the science department at a university, which I don't think my sister knew, and, and gave her, uh, I don't know what it's called. Uh, um, so she went to university and became a scientist. These days, she basically translates from English to English, from English written by people for whom English is a second language. And so she translates scientific papers from English to English. Okay, and you grew up in Philadelphia. How did the family get from uh, Brooklyn to Philadelphia? I didn't grow up in Philadelphia. Um, I was born uh, uh, in a hospital in Philly. My dad was in the Navy. Um, but uh, when he got out of the Navy... Uh, we moved to Queens, and when I was four years old, the family moved from Queens to Tarrytown, New York, and that's basically where I was raised. I remember going to a Chinese restaurant in Tarrytown. Can't remember the name. My parents, we go back and forth to New York. Okay, so you're growing up. All the hopes and dreams are in the older sibling. You're going to school, good student, bad student. 
I was a, I was a fairly good student. I, I I did well, not as well as my older brother, but I did well. To give you the picture, my older brother went to Harvard. I went to Columbia. Where did your sister go? Since we're going this far, my sister went to a whole bunch of uh, art schools, one after another. Okay, so you're growing up. You're doing well in school. You have friends. Do you play sports? Are you a nerd? What kind of kid are you? I I was a pretty solitary kid, um, and uh, um, when I got to be thirteen, uh, music took over my life. I learned to play when I got the measles when I was thirteen. So I learned to play lying on my back. I borrowed one of my brother's guitars and one of his. Uh, books. I could already read music. I, I had studied flute since I was about eight. Um, so, so l teaching myself from the book was fairly uh, easy. And as I say, music took over. Okay. So in a Jewish family, usually kids start taking piano lessons. I remember taking piano lessons at age six. You never took piano lessons. You just started with the flute. I won't say I never took piano lessons. I, I, I took a few, um, but I remember my mom asking me, what would you like to play? And for some reason I said flute. And so that's where I went. I think I took the piano lessons after the flute lessons, actually. And you'd learn uh, flute with a private teacher or with yes. a public? Okay. And you were taking flute before you had this epiphany. Did you like playing flute? Did you take to that? I don't think I really took to it, no. Okay, so you had measles. It's 1958. Uh, Elvis has got, you know, some purchase on the world. The folk boom is sort of happening, but really booms sort of a little bit later in the early 60s. You're there picking up the guitar. What are you playing? Um. I was playing whatever was on the radio, um, and uh, at that time, or shortly after the the folk scare happened, um, and uh, so I I found a, a record in my parents' collection. I never saw them listen to any of the music that they had. They had about twenty records, and one of them was the Weavers at Carnegie Hall which I just loved. And so I got involved with uh, uh, the folk scare, which was uh, parallel to the other scare. Okay. Now you're talking about being able to read music. Those of us who come a little bit later than you are really getting into the guitar because of the Beatles, we're playing chords. So at that particular point in time, you were playing the notes, you were playing the leads. No, at that particular, I started out learning the chords too, and uh, I could figure out the chords for anything on the radio uh, at the time. So, so I was doing that. Um, you know, the rock and roll tunes, the, uh, the folk tunes, whatever it was, they were all pretty easy to figure out. So this came naturally. I think I was able to concentrate and teach myself. I actually know somebody to whom I believe music came naturally. I don't, I, I had to work hard for everything. Well, let me put it a different way. I remember playing guitars and my friend said, okay, now we're going to change key. 
I remember telling myself, I'm out. This is a step beyond me. I could learn how to do that, but I don't have that facility. Are you saying that every hurdle you had to work to go through? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think that's true. And um, I, I've been, it's been pointed out to me that I play music from a variety of genres, uh, which I think is true. Uh, uh, my records have all been uh, salads. And uh, the thing is, I never heard anything played on the guitar that I didn't want to play myself. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. So, can you tell me why your brother had a guitar? My brother was studying uh, classical guitar, and he had uh, a couple of uh, nylon string classic guitars. Well, needless to say, you know, when you're starting out, certainly picking out notes, nylon string guitars, they're hard to play. With a wide neck, usually the action, I mean, it's not an easy jump. Well, the action was quite playable because he was taking lessons and knew what he was doing. And uh, wide neck didn't scare me. I have rather large hands. And um, I've never had a problem with a wide neck. Okay, so you're 13. 
Measles doesn't go on forever. The measles end. Where does that leave you musically? Playing everything that's on the radio. And uh, I started um, I started taping things because uh, I, I had a, a, a woolen sock tape recorder, and then I realized I never listened to the tapes, so I stopped that. Okay, your parents had a woolen sack. I mean, that was not common in the house in the 50s. Maybe it was a voice of music. Well, whatever it was, how did you end up having a tape recorder in the house? Who bought that? I may have, but I can't remember. Maybe it was a birthday present. I just don't recall. Okay, so you're, you, you're now playing everything on the radio. You're doing this in your house. Do you start playing out when you go to a friend's house, when you go to summer camp? Do you have groups, anything like that? I started playing out a bit uh, um, when I got old enough to play in bars. I, I played in bars and I played, you know, the classics, uh, uh, Sophisticated Lady and Tea for Two and all that. Um, um, so... That was one part of it, and then I did go to camp and uh, uh, played guitar there. I played guitar everywhere. Okay, so how did you make the hurdle of playing in bars, playing for money? Did you say, I want to do this, or I want to be recognized? What was the driving force there? I started playing with some other people, and... uh, uh, and we were looking for any kind of a job. So we found a job in a bar when, where at first I wasn't old enough, so I didn't do it. When I was old enough, I, I could do it. Okay, you're saying playing the classics. For those who don't know, I mean, people have no idea how big the folk scene was. It was even a, you know, the hootenanny on TV. Tell me about how the folk scene burgeoned and then to what degree you got involved. Well, wait a minute. When I said the classics, I mean the the jazz standards. That's what you play in right. in bars. It wasn't really folk. Right, music I understand. But ultimately, you were talking about being infected by the uh, folk virus, and it seemed like you ultimately got into that. Yeah, I used to go down to Washington Square on Sundays, uh, take a train into the city, and uh, go down there, and uh, people were playing together, and you know, I, I learned from that experience and. From there, I would sometimes wander over to uh, uh, McDougal Street, uh, where there were clubs, and uh, I performed at at uh, at one of them. There's a there's a book uh, about the early folk scene, and a guy said uh, one time a guy came in and, and applied to go on the stage, and you know it was a hoot any kind of thing. Anybody could go on the stage. And he thought, oh, this is going to be terrible because the kid had a bad haircut and uh, it looked weird. That was me. And he said when he played, it was, you know, very good. So, Okay, you're a nice Jewish boy. Your father's a doctor. Do you view music as a career? Or do you say, you know, you've been driven into, you have to be a professional, go to college, and this is just a sideshow? I thought I had to go to college at first. Um, but I kept playing, um, and, uh, you said something I wanted to pick up on, but, uh, my memory is not so good. Uh, oh yeah, um, you said I'm a, a nice Jewish boy. I was born to Jewish parents, 
but it was really impossible for me to be religious. Um, we would celebrate Passover, and at every Seder, at some point, my father would say, this God must be a very insecure creature to require so much constant praise. I mean, how am I going to go, go worship with that? Well, what I was referencing, that, that is certainly very interesting, is the values as opposed to going to shul or bar mitzvah or anything like that. You didn't uh, have yes. a bar mitzvah from what? I did. You did? You did. Okay, so I mean. My parents gave me a choice to have it or not, and I chose not, and that was the wrong answer. So I had it. <laughs> I actually didn't have any choice. Okay, but usually in a Jewish family, I'm speaking from my own experience and observation, you know, I knew I was going to college before I went to any school. You know, and they say, you know, be a professional. This was driven into me before I could think for myself, is all I'm saying. And to veer from that, my parents were not that supportive. Well, in my second year at Columbia, um, I had uh, a bit of a breakdown and uh, uh, took a leave of absence, uh, which I've never ended, actually. Uh so, so there I was not in college anymore, and I was uh, playing music and going down to the village. How hard was it to drop out? I went and did it the right way. I went to uh, the dean's office and uh, spoke to them, and he sent me to the campus psychiatrist, and he recommended somebody for me to see. So I dropped out and started seeing this uh, psychiatrist. My father was very angry that I hadn't asked him to recommend somebody. But, you know, there we go again. How much as dropping out was college didn't work or I'm on this music path and I have to pursue it? You know, I've never asked myself that question. Um, I think I couldn't handle college. I think that was the main thing. Um, but there had to have been some of the other involved there. Uh, I, I don't think that human beings uh, do things for the black and white reasons all, all the time. I know I certainly didn't. So you stopped going to school. What's your life like then? Are you living in the city or are you living back in Terrytown? I was living in the city and, um, I got offered a gig, uh, on a State Department tour, which turned into two State Department tours. And after that, I, I got various gigs here and there. I played uh, rhythm guitar for a Calypso singer. Um, you know, I did whatever I could get. Well, you know, there's this new movie about Blood, Sweat, and Tears talking about their State Department tour and the deleterious effects thereof. What were the State Department tours you were on? Um, the first one was uh, in Southeast Asia. The band was a band called the Phoenix Singers. Um, and uh, the Phoenix Singers were an offshoot of the Belafonte Singers. And uh, it was three uh, very well operatically trained black musicians singing folk music 
in shirts open to the navel, accompanied by two heterosexual Jewish guitar players. And I think the point of it was to show them that in America, white people can work for black people. But I, I, I wasn't required to figure out why we were there at the time. I was just required to play. And that's what I did. Okay, so you've dropped out of college. You found some gigs. Is there a dream or are you just fumbling? Oh, I think I was just fumbling, and I think I've always just fumbled. Uh, I've never had a goal uh, in, in music, except at the point where I could take a cab home from a gig in New York City, I had it made. Everything else was gravy. Uh, it was enough to be able to take a cab home at 3 a.m. and not have to go into the subways and wait and wait what kind of living situation did you have and how are you paying the rent um i had a um a few different places uh usually uh uh one bedroom uh at first shared with uh, another musician um i had a, a place on a six six floor walk up on mcdougall street uh, in a tiny little place, which I shared with another musician, and uh, unbelievably small, even smaller than the Paris apartment. Paris apartments are smaller than New York. And were your parents financially supportive at all? They were. My parents were very supportive financially. Uh, I tried not to ask, but, uh, but they really helped me through that period. I remember being on the subway uh, uh, across the aisle from a woman with a bag full of groceries and being just that close to asking her if I could have something from there because food was hard to come by. And I wouldn't so now it's the for Right. And now it's the early 60s and the folk boom is booming and in people are coming to New York City to participate. Where were you then? Um, I found my way back to the village and, th and this apartment I was describing on McDougal Street. And uh, I eventually got a gig at uh, the Gaslight, which is also on McDougal Street, a block over from my apartment. And I was the opening act for everybody uh, for 50 bucks a week. And... Um, that was a wonderful period. I got to play with some incredible artists on the same bill with, and sometimes on the same stage, you know, sometimes I, I would get to play with some of those people. And some of those people were? Uh, Skip James. Um, wow. Uh, Don Reno and, and Bill Harrell. Um, Doc Watson. Um they were all kinds of people whose records I loved. Now you're playing out. To what degree are you a student of the instrument and going home and playing in your apartment? I mean, are you really working hard? Are you say, well, you know, I play at the gig and I might work out a little bit at home. Are you spending hours practicing at home too? You know, I, I spend hours practicing at home. And I, I, when I was going to Columbia, 
I wandered down to the village one afternoon and I passed a place that at the time was called the Dragon's Den and there was a sandwich sign outside that said, Reverend Gary Davis here this afternoon. Uh, so I paid my money and went in. I, I had heard, uh, uh, I actually had a record that had one side of uh, uh, the Reverend and the other side uh, was Pink Anderson who was uh, a singer who would draw crowds uh, for uh, medicine shows. Uh, anyhow, so they were both ba basically street singers. And um, so I went in and, and I listened and it was, the Reverend was incredible. Um, he was one of the great guitar players, uh, one of the greatest I've ever seen. And he was also, I don't think people mention this enough, he was also a fantastic singer. He was really, really good. And uh, after the set, I approached him and asked uh, if, uh, if I could take lessons from him. And he said, yes, uh, uh, $5, bring the money, honey. Uh, <laughs> that was the Reverend. That was Reverend Gary Davis. And how long did you take lessons? A few years. Uh, learning to play his tunes the way he played them. I tried. What would a lesson be like? Well, first of all, it would usually last the whole day. Uh, and uh, his wife uh, would make lunch at some point. Um, and he, he was extremely patient man. And so he would play something and I would try and copy it, and he, he would correct me. Um, but he was a great teacher, and he was very, very patient. And, uh, but he'd also, he, he'd also screw around with you. Uh, I remember one lesson he was teaching me this song called uh, um, I'll Be All Right, which is the song from which We Shall Overcome was taken. Same melody. Uh, um, and... Uh, at one point, he played a chord, which I didn't recognize. And I said, what's that chord? He said, this is an E ninth. I said, what's an E ninth? He said, this is an E ninth. Oh, okay. So I, I went home and I, I, I learned and practiced. And the next week, I came back and I played it for him. And he stopped me. He said, what, what chord are you playing there? I said, an E ninth. He said, what's an E ninth? Well, this is an E ninth. No, it's a B minor. And then anytime he knew I was there and he was playing that tune, it would be a B minor. But he, he, it could also be an E ninth. I mean, there's only one note difference and it, it, it's not a, a sharp contrast. And how did the lessons, how did you stop taking lessons with him? Gee, at one point I got promoted to where I wasn't paying him for the lessons, but I was I was taking him to his gigs. And that was very important in my life uh, because we, we went to a lot of churches. Um, and I discovered that I was never as welcome anywhere else as I was in the churches he brought me to. And so that made me curious, and I started occasionally going to other churches. And I learned a lot about guitar playing from the other churches where there were no guitar played. Uh, what I learned was 
Um, well, I'll give you an example of what I learned. If you think of B.B. King's playing, and I was playing single note things at this time, as well as the, the reverence things, um, B.B. King's choice of notes is his own. Um, but his phrasing is that of a preacher. And it was like a light going off when I realized that. Um, you know, B.B. plays with a lot of rests, and a rest is a musical note. Um, and so I, I, I got it. Um, the, the thing about those pauses uh, is that uh, when the preachers would preach, sometimes they would, sometimes they would stop. And everybody would want to hear what he would say next, how he would finish his sentence. And, and that, that's a great thing for public speaking, but it's also great for playing blues guitar. Okay, you're taking these lessons. Meanwhile, Dave Van Rock is playing. Dylan comes to town. Were you integrated in that scene, or was that separate from you? You've got the wrong time frame. That was, uh, that was before I uh, moved down to the village. Uh, I did meet and get to know Dave. Uh, and uh, I, I did something that I didn't realize was so good, but it was really good. Um, it, I was in the village, and there was a, a kid showed up playing dulcimer, which I never considered an instrument. And he had a, a, a really great song called Fairfax County. And I heard that song, and uh, it's, it's a ballad. Now, Dave Von Rock is usually known for his hoarse voice and his kind of bluff performance. But when he does a ballad, it's, it's tremendous. Um, so I knew this, was, this tune was for Dave Von Rock. So I took the kid with me until I could find Van Rock. We wandered around the village. We found him backstage at the bottom line. He was, uh, it was uh, Tom Paxton's gig. Uh, and he was visiting Paxton. They were old friends. And uh, I introduced them. David, here's David. David, here's David. And I, I left. And uh, I never saw Dave Von Rock again. Um, the next time I, I ran into uh, David Massingill, who wrote the song, uh, was at a memorial for Van Rock. And Massingill said that after that night, when I introduced them, um, they were always together. He would drive him. He would sometimes be the opening act. Uh, they were road companions. So that was a good thing I did. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. 
Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. <laughs> I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay, since you set the time frame that you're a little after 62, et cetera, in the folk boom, to what degree were you aware of it? And to what degree did you say, I want to be into this, or maybe I'm too late, or I want to know these people? Well, you know, this is another example of me not putting two and two together necessarily. Uh, you see a, a, a whole thing and you wonder how I was going to integrate myself into it. I never thought of that. All I thought of is, where can I get a job? And how can I do it well? Um, I, I sometimes get asked, you know, I've done a lot of recording sessions uh, with some very famous people. And I've been asked, um, what's it like uh, doing a recording session with Bob Dylan? I said, well, the, the important words there are recording session. It's a job. And I concentrate on doing my job. I, d I don't let, you know, I was a huge Dylan fan, but I, I wouldn't be starstruck. I had a job to do. Okay, how much was doing the job properly and how much was getting paid? Well, if it was somebody really famous, the whole thing was doing the job properly. Uh, if uh, But you don't get to do that until you gain a certain amount of recognition yourself. You know, I did a lot of gigs for that, that were, I mean, the first album I was on was something called Psychedelic Soul. And uh, I don't want to say that it was bad, but everything they printed after a few months was sold to Red China. Um, <laughs> it was bad. Uh, 
and I, I played on a lot of, uh, you know, bad beginner things. And for a while I had, I, I would be called by a, a, a producer named Tommy K, Thomas Jefferson K. Oh, of who, course. Who re- you know Tommy? Yeah, he, I, mean, I don't know him personally, but he even put out albums under his own name. Well, the thing about Tommy was he wanted to be, um, who was that great uh, producer who ended up in jail? Uh, Phil Spector? Phil Spector. He wanted to be Phil Spector. He always wears sunglasses and and slouched and said, anyhow, the thing about Tommy is you, you never got paid scale. Um, so after a while, I, I didn't have to do those gigs, and I stopped doing them. I was telling Tommy, you know, if you're not going to pay scale, I'm not going to do it. Um, and actually, I got paid double scale a lot. Um, I don't remember if it was that period, but I, I, I used to get at least scale. And Tommy said, well, listen, you, you've got to play this one. The other guitar player is Eric Clapton. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. So I go to the studio a couple days later, and uh, I look around. There's another guitar player, and I go to Tommy. I say, Tommy, you know that's not Eric Clapton. He says, yeah, but it looks just like him, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Now you know. (laughs) You know, when when you're just starting out, you, you, you meet all the bottom feeders first. Oh, absolutely. So at this point in time, now you pick up the guitar when you're 13, you ultimately expand to other stringed instruments. When does that happen? Oh, you know, I I wish I could name a year when something happened. But, uh, you know, in addition to not putting two and two together, I, I, I never recorded when something like that happened. I just Loved that it happened and went through. I mean, um, well, I'm talking more I think emotionally. I, was, I don't need to like February 2nd, 1964. I mean, did you sit there and say, oh, look, there's that instrument. I want to learn how to play. Or did you consciously say, I need to expand my repertoire? Or were you just infatuated with every stringed instrument? You wanted to play them all? Not exactly. The first uh, instrument, not a guitar that I took up was the dobro. And uh, there was... One dobro player, a really good musician uh, in New York at the time, and I figured, well, two wouldn't hurt. And so I started to learn a little bit of dobro, very uh, basic uh, stuff, and I could, I could sit in with people and play. Uh, so, so that's what got me to, to playing dobro. Fiddle was more complex, uh, and I can actually describe it. I, I, I didn't t- play fiddle until um, I was leading my own band. And uh, um, Jay Unger was in the band. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jay, but uh, you're f- for certain familiar with at least one of the songs he wrote called Ashokin Farewell that uh, Ken Burns used as the theme for his thing on the Civil War. Um, so I started to think, Boy, I loved his playing, and I, I started thinking, I, I want to play fiddle, and I know what I want to sound like. I want to sound like Jay Unger. Um, so I, I, I 
bought myself a fiddle and uh, proceeded to uh, to learn how to uh, feebly play on it. And I actually how you- played on 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 a. I played on on a few of my records, uh, um, usually with a couple of other fiddlers playing at the same time. But how did you end up playing on Jerry Jeff Walker's Bojangles, Mister Bojangles? I was running around the village, and there was a harmonica player named Donnie Brooks uh, who ran around. He was a good guy. Uh, I'm really sad he's not with us any longer. Uh, but uh, Donnie thought that Jerry Jeff and I would get along really well. At the time, Jerry Jeff was part of a, a jazz fusion band. Um, I, I usually know the name of it, but for some reason it is Circus Maximus. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think that may- yeah, uh, uh, they had a, a, a an AM, I mean an FM hit uh, with uh, uh, one of the fusion things. But that band didn't like the stuff that Jerry Jeff wrote. So he and I would play together. And uh, um, I, I really enjoyed doing it, and I wanted to do it more. But, you know, he was part of that band. But I, I, I got gigs for us, actually. Um, and I started, uh, just to take a step back, Jody Stecker became a good friend of mine. And I learned more from Jody Stecker maybe than anybody else, uh, uh, than, than I learned from anybody else. Anyhow, Jody you, used to take me up to WBAI-FM to uh, Bob Fass's program, Radio Unnameable, which started at midnight and ran to God knows. And uh, so I started to bring, you know, later I started to bring Jerry Jeff up there. And uh, Bob Fass loved the uh, the Bojangles song. And uh, we had done it on his show about three times when he made a tape loop out of those three performances of the same song. And if we weren't coming up, he might play it a few times a night. And... Uh, Now, the only privilege that a songwriter has is deciding who can be the first one to record his song. After that, it's up to anyone. Um, Jerry Jeff didn't have a a manager, let alone a... a, a, He was signed to Vanguard, uh, um, but his band didn't want to do any of his country tunes. However, that song from Bob Fass playing it spread all over New York. You know, people were looking for it and asking for it. Um, The piano player at Jilly's, which is where Sinatra used to hang out, uh, was a guy named Bobby Cole. And he was a, a, a talented piano player, and he heard it on the radio in the wee hours coming home from his gig. And... um. He decided, well, that's a good one. I'll, I'll, I'll cover that. And so he recorded it for um, a subsidiary of CBS. Uh, I, I can't get the name of the, the, the label, but uh, maybe Date or something. Anyhow, uh, he recorded it, and it was sent to disc jockeys, and it started to get played, and Jerry Jeff said, wait a minute, that's my song. Uh, and I didn't give him permission to record it. So he hurried up, got himself a manager, got himself uh, um, 
uh, a label. The first place we had to go was to Vanguard because he was signed there. And Vanguard was the only label in New York City that wasn't trying to find that song. Uh, so th they they booked some time for us in 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 the studio and uh, Gary uh, Gary White playing bass, Jerry Jeff, uh, me and Norman Smart, who later played drums for uh, Elvis, but he wasn't playing drums that day. He was playing uh, he was playing on his body. Uh, um, he also played drums on the first Mountain album. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, he was a talented guy. And uh, so we we did a nice performance of Mr. Bojangles, and they listened to it, and they said, oh, you can record it. Yeah, it just if we want a, 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 an album from you later, you have to give us an album. So uh, uh, Jerry Jeff signed with Atco, which was a, a division of Atlantic. And um, he was booked to uh, uh, record the song uh in Memphis at uh, at Sam Phillips Studio, um, and uh, I was brought along. Uh, I don't know if Jerry Jeff asked it or the or the man David. I can't get his last name. I feel terrible because he I knew him well. Um, anyhow, we we flew a small plane down to Memphis, and we went to uh, the studio. And the engineer was Tom Dowd. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Dowd, but of course, he, of course, he invented faders, uh, and also he was on the Manhattan Project. I mean, this was a skillful guy, and he didn't know me from Adam. He'd never heard Jerry Jeff live. Uh, I was basically Jerry Jeff's orchestra for years. Um, so, so I'm sitting in the studio, and he's trying to get a a, a take he likes of Mr. Bojangles, and the band has it, and they're there, Jerry Jeff performs it for them, and so that they're doing it kind of straight from him in waltz time, because it is in three four time. But I didn't play it that way. Uh, anyhow, I, I was—it's embarrassing to admit—but I was in tears, and uh, um, Dowd was getting very frustrated with the band. They couldn't get out of this Viennese waltz thing. He said, let the kid do something, you know. There was a woman who was playing a 12-string. Give him the 12-string. So I played my part to it, which was not in 3-4. It was in 6-8. And that changed the whole thing. And that's what was put out. And we didn't have trouble with it after that. And did Tom Dowd remember you and ever call you in the future? No. No, I called him once, and he remembered me enough to see him, and I had a, a little lick I thought might be a, the basis for an instrumental, but it was too, it, was, it, it wasn't very original, and he, he said no. You know, I became better. Then you play on Tom Rush's first Columbia record. How did that come to happen? Tom asked me. Um, so you knew Tom? I don't know if I knew him at the time. I mean, my our relationship may have started at uh, at those sessions, which, by the way, were the first sessions recorded with Dolby. <laughs> really? There's, there's a bit of trivia for you. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. 
So uh, either you know what that is or you don't. I won't uh, hang in there. But you know, there's yeah. a famous story because, of course, Dol- Dolby was superseded theoretically by DBX because Dolby only worked on the high end. DBX worked across the complete spectrum, and then Steely Dan cut a whole album, and the decode was off, and that was pretty much the end of DBX. Hmm. But the um, then you work with Al Cooper on Easy Does It. That's another album I have, me and 10 other people. How do you end up working with Al Cooper? I got called. I might have known Al a little bit beforehand. Um, Al Cooper is one of the best humans playing music. I mean, just as a human being, he's, he's, he's fantastic. And he's also an excellent, excellent, excellent musician. But uh, he's somebody in this business that's easy to love. Okay, then how do you end up hooking up with Dylan? Well, the first time I met Dylan, uh, it was at a Jerry Jeff uh, concert at the Bitter End in the village. And he was in the audience. And afterwards, I was taken to meet him. And uh, uh, we shook hands. I said hello. And... That was that, and I figured he was there to hear Jerry Jeff because Jerry Jeff's a songwriter and Dylan's a songwriter, and songwriters go and listen to each other. But um, then I got called, and my memory of it was he said he wanted to try out a studio, and would I come and, and do it with him? Well, it was a studio he actually knew quite well at Columbia. And uh, I ended up uh, recording with him. I actually did, uh, I'm on four albums of his uh, in different amounts on different albums. On one of them, but I the first the album is that I played on. You said you produced the tracks too, you said? I produced two of the tracks that I played on. Which were which they were, ones? They were much later. They they were uh, um, on one of his quote bootleg releases, and they were uh, Duncan and Brady and uh, Miss the Miss the Mississippi and You. Okay, you're first working on self portrait. What do you remember about that? I remember that I was sick as a dog through the whole recording thing. And uh, I would come home and fall on my bed with my clothes on and wake up in time to get to the studio, take a shower, get to the studio. And that was it, bed and uh, the studio. Uh, so uh, um, that I remember that very well. Uh, also, uh, on that session, I, I think on self-portrait, most of the sessions that I was on were just me and Bob, and they were later released like that, uh, called Another Self-Portrait, I think, or something like that. Uh, and some of them uh, Al Cooper was on. And that may be where I met Al. Okay, so Self-Portrait is a double album. You know, Dylan has his so-called motorcycle accent, which is up to debate now, comes back out. Uh, with John Wesley Harding, then Nashville Skyline, does double uh, album uh, self-portrait. Nashville Skyline came first, I think. Nashville Skyline came before self-portrait. Yeah. 
I, he, I think so. Yeah, definitely. And Self-Portrait is a double album, has a certain number of, co- of uh, covers, and for the first time ever, Dylan gets bad reviews. Right. Did you continue to have contact with him? Did you sense that he was troubled by that? No, uh, I didn't. But let me remind you, I'm the guy who doesn't know what one and one is. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't know. And I, I, I didn't have a whole lot of contra- uh, contact with him then until he called me for another group of sessions. Okay, well, that's the interesting thing, because he does self-portrait, comes out in the spring of 1970, and then he comes out with another album within months, New Morning, which you were on, which is I one of my favorite albums, Sign on the Window, et cetera, by Dylan. Um, is there any consciousness that he's trying to make a statement? Is he working faster? What's the difference between recording New Morning and recording self-portrait? You know, I sometimes tell reviewers or interviewers, don't ask me any overview questions because I can never answer overview questions. I, 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 I'm too busy looking at the trees to see the forest. Okay, if I were to mention certain songs on New Morning, would you remember what you played on or too much in the forest? Um. I might remember some of them. I, I, there are some that I wouldn't know for sure, okay. really. So we have Self-Portrait. We have New Morning. What are the other two Dylan albums you play on? Well, there was another one that came out, uh, out not long after one or the other of those two, which was simply called Dylan, uh, right. which which had some more takes from, from one of those two recordings, uh, and I'm not sure which. And the other one was this bootleg uh uh, album thing, you know, which I told you about, where I I had okay. to produce some sessions. I don't want to focus on this to the exclusion of your own career, but was this sort of one and done, or have you maintained any kind of relationship with Dylan? Um, we have a relationship, but in the music industry, relationships don't necessarily include frequent contact uh you can be in a city and meet a player and not see him again for seven years but you got close to him and when you get back to that city you can pick up your last conversation i mean that's the way it is in in the music business um bob and i had a a little uh, I got mad at him for something at one point, and we didn't have much contact for a few years. If you are willing to reveal it, what'd you get mad about? I really don't want to go into it. Uh, it, it, it wasn't a big deal to anyone in the world but me. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
the all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Let's move on from there. How do you get your own record deal with Columbia? That is interesting. Um, I was accompanying a woman named Rosalie Sorrells. Uh, and Rosalie got booked uh, at the second Isle of Wight Festival, which was the last one for decades. Uh, and the reason it was the last one for decades is that the crowds broke down the fences and everybody got in free, hundreds of thousands of people. So I was there to accompany Rosalie and um, Experienced performers know that that uh, a, a crowd that um, uh, doesn't pay is the hardest one to satisfy. A crowd that gets in free, they're really hard to satisfy. And uh, a number of very good artists got booed off the stage or, or came within a whisker of it. Um, and... Um, Rosalie was was on Wednesday afternoon. There was no press there at all. Um, and uh, so I was accompanying her, and uh, the crowd started to get restive. Rosalie's thing was very intimate. In a small club, it, it would get right to you. In, a, in front of several hundred thousand people, it really wasn't built for that. Uh, but it should have gone over anyhow, and they, they were rude. And she was about to be overcome. And she asked me to do uh, a song of mine, a funny song, a long funny song called The Bullfrog Blues. Uh, she'd never asked me to do a song in, in one of her sets and never did again. But that afternoon she did. And I did Bullfrog Blues and the crowd loved it. And they let Rosalie finish her set. Um, so when we got off stage, a little while after we'd packed up the instruments, the promoters came to me and asked me if I'd come back uh, uh, at dusk and uh, maybe do some more. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but dusk is the very best time to 
to perform at an outdoor festival because it's getting dark, so you ha the, the only focus is the stage, but you're hopefully not so burnt out that you can't really hear what, what's going on. So, okay, you know, I came back and I asked them how many songs I should do, and they said do an hour. And I don't know that I'd ever done an hour before, but I went out there and I, I did an hour and got a couple encores. Wow. Uh, the, yeah, it really was something. And uh, there's there's some video of, of part of the crew talking about it afterwards, uh -huh, uh -huh, which is encouraging. Uh, but um, Tio Macero was there for uh, Columbia recording it because they wanted to release that. And he recommended that they sign me. Unfortunately, I never met him. I wish I had. I would have liked to have thanked him. But uh, um, so that's that's how I got signed to Columbia. Now, when you get signed, Clive Davis is still running the company. Then he gets blown out. That affect you and your career whatsoever, any to any degree? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm okay. Sorry. Okay. So the first album you record it. By today's standards, very difficult by the period before. You get to produce it. So to what degree was the company hands-on? To what degree were you happy? And to what degree? Then what was your experience after it came out? Well, I didn't know anything about producing an album, but I knew what I wanted. Um, it never occurred to me that there was money involved. Uh, so I just did, those were the days when, when some artists spent, uh, tens of thousands of recording an album. So, so anyhow, I did the album the way I wanted. And, um, there was a, a, a one of their house producers who'd been assigned to it and, and he wasn't happy about it, but they let me do it. And, um. When it came out, um, I really don't know much about it except that I found myself in uh, L.A. And uh, there was a, a, a billboard of the cover of the album. Uh, the cover of the album was actually a, a sketch of me that my sister did. Um, so nobody knew that that person on What's the name of that boulevard, that huge famous? Sunset. So, yeah, that huge Sunset Boulevard was me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to stand next to it, but it wouldn't have done any good. So, uh, yeah, I don't really know uh, what okay, effect or not. So the had. album comes out, gets a big push. I have Did friends it? who bought it. Uh, people are very aware of it. There is a lot of criticism relative to your voice. Did that affect you whatsoever? Uh, no. For one thing, the criticism was quite valid. Um, back then, um, my singing was extraable. It was terrible. But I could play the guitar. Um, but the singing really wasn't very good um, on most of it. There, there's a track or two where I did sing well, because the point is um, a good voice and good singing are not the same thing. Uh, so anyhow, 
years later, after I'd taken my uh, 22 year sabbatical, um, I came back, I discovered that I really could sing uh, and I enjoyed it. Uh, there, there were physical sensations coming from it that I'd never felt before that I loved. So, uh, and these days I can still sing. I, I don't play as well as I used to. Okay. What was the trick that you could finally, or what happened that you could finally sing? I received uh, a lot of advice. I took some voice lessons in California for a while, but the the stuff that really helped most was some advice from Phoebe Snow, who was a good friend of mine. And uh, in particular, the advice she gave me is, uh, when you're about to sing, open your throat like you're yawning and sing through the yawn. And, and that, that was really important. It, I didn't get it right away, but I, as I said, I did later. She also discussed that um, your voice doesn't really feel like it's coming from your mouth. It feels like it's coming from your nose and eyes, your mask, in other words. And uh, um, that stuff was all very helpful to me. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask how George Harrison ends up on the album. Well, I, I had met George. One time I met him in the Columbia Studios, and he sang me one of my songs, uh, uh, which you could have knocked me over with a feather. And I asked him where he learned it, and he said Bob taught it to him. And I had no idea Bob knew one of my songs. So that was, that was very nice. And so we'd met at a couple of different places. And uh, um, my manager at the time was a guy named Al Aronowitz, who was very close to the Beatles. And my guess is that uh, he asked uh, uh, George if he would, you know, record with me. And actually, the Ringo, I don't know if I should tell this story. Well, I started. I'll do it. I've, I vowed never to tell it. But uh, Ringo told me uh, that uh, after my first album came out, uh, John set the, uh, the other three down and made them sit through the entire album. Wow. So, so, I, so I guess we've, we've, we've unveiled his sadistic nature right there. <laughs> okay. To what degree, because you started before the Beatles, although they are somewhat their contemporary in age. No, they started before me. Let me restate that. Before their breakthrough in America. So, you were playing other types of music. When the Beatles hit, were you a Beatles fan? Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. I, I, I loved the Beatles. And the, the reason I know that um, they were known first was um, I was the music counselor at the age of 14 uh, at at a summer camp. And um, some of the kids had the Beatles album. So, So I'm pretty clear that the Beatles were making some noise long before me. I didn't record until I was uh, maybe 19 or 20. 
Okay, Al Aronowitz was a journalist. How did he end up as being your manager, and was he a good manager? It was a very complicated relationship, and both of us made a lot of mistakes. Um, I met him through Rosalie uh, Sorrells, and, and, and that's kind of where that came together. Well, would the story or your career have played out differently if he was, if someone else more experienced was the manager? Oh, I really don't know. Uh, um, he did a lot of, you know, in lately I have come to realize that he did a lot of things for me that were really great. Um, but as I say, our, our relationship was difficult. Um, and I was definitely responsible for some of it. And he was definitely responsible for some of it. So, And how long before your sabbatical did he remain your manager or did you replace him? I, I, I'm very bad with years. Let, um, let me ask you a question. Did you have another manager after Al? Yeah, I think I did. Um, but I'm blanking. Okay, not important. So you put out this album. Suddenly, you know, the train leaves the station. You make another record. Well, what's your experience during this period? Are you just having your head down and you're working so much you don't know which end is up? Are you worried about sales? Are you worry about audience, the size you're playing? Are you enjoying it? Do you feel it's more like a grind? What's it like? Oh, I, I was enjoying it until that one time I told you about New Jersey uh, when I realized I didn't want to play. But I really was enjoying it, and, and I was working my butt off. Uh, and I, I didn't realize I could say, look, this is too much, slow down. Uh, so I never said it. And then one day I just kind of said, I got to stop. Okay. Drugs and alcohol factor on the road. They were always there. Uh, they, I don't think they, uh, affected, uh, performance a great deal, especially not uh, alcohol, uh, because although back in those days, I, I used to s sometimes drink Jack Daniels before and during a concert, but uh, I can only remember one concert where it affected me enough to comment on it. Okay, so if the first album comes out in 72, when does the sabbatical begin? 79. Okay, so you make records on Columbia. It gives you a big push at first, and then you end up switching to fantasy. How does, you know, what happens there? Um, I, I was signed by fantasy, and my manager and I moved out to uh, the Bay Area, which is where fantasy is. And um, my first album uh was a double album and uh fa fantasy uh said that it sold 200,000 copies in the first month uh, i don't believe it did but i think that was a good press release it, it maybe came close to that I, I but i don't think it did the number that they said uh and they were they were very nice people and at one point they were very happy to have hired a former uh, uh, Barry Gordy employer, uh, 
a guy who uh, had worked on publicity for, uh, I, well, I don't know, I think it was publicity, for uh, Barry Gordy's uh, record company in Detroit. And um, I was passing the office, his office one day, and he was telling all his people that I was a joke. Um, so uh, that kind of killed my relationship there, as far as I was concerned. And did Columbia not want to make any more records? Is that how you ended up at Fantasy? What happened with Columbia is the bean counters took over, and I know it was the bean counters because I had my contract that um, if one of my uh, records sold uh, 100000 that I would get uh, a $25,000 bonus. And um, after a certain point, one of my records hit, uh, hit that. My first record had sold 100000 and they paid the bonus, but that made them look into it. And they discovered that my third album in another couple of weeks was going to hit it. And uh, my second album a couple of weeks after that. And uh, the fourth album was going gangbusters. So in order to avoid paying out another $75,000, they released me. then they didn't have to pay that. Wow. Okay. So, how, you know, during this period till 72 to 79, how are you doing financially? I think I'm doing okay. I'm, uh, I can take a cab after the gig. It was fine. Okay. And how did you meet your wife? Was it during this period? Um... I think it was actually pretty early. Uh, it was before or just after I released my first album. And of course, it was at a concert. And how did you meet her? Uh, she was part of a group of kids uh, that were members of the New Jersey Folk Society. And um, this was an interesting group of kids because... Almost every one of them became a professional musician. Wow. It was, yeah, it was really impressive. Uh, and the, the gig, the first gig that I played there was the first gig that I played as David Bromberg outside of New York City. So it was a big deal to me. And how did you sustain a relationship when you were on the road so much? Well, she was a professional musician. Uh, she became a, a professional musician, and we'd pass each other on the road. And uh, so we'd get together for the time given us and uh, then travel on. And then at a certain point, we decided to live together. And I was, at this point, uh, living in Marin County. And uh, I had a lemon tree uh in the garden in front of the house and she drove up for the first time and she saw that and she thought it was really touching that I'd glued all those lemons to the tree. <laughs> and when did you get married? 
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, so you're on stage in New Jersey. Nothing's coming to your brain. You have this bad experience. Literally what happens right thereafter and how do you make a left turn into violins? Well, um, I, I had become interested in them and, uh, I started to, uh, to buy a few and sell a few. Uh, and it really interested me how someone could tell when and where, and maybe even by whom a violin was made by looking at it. Um, so when I decided that I had to stop performing, I decided to go to violin making school, uh, not because I wanted to make violins, but because I wanted to understand them enough to learn to identify them. And I, I did that after a terrible depression that Nancy barely lived through, my wife. Uh, it was very rough on her. Um, but because uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Okay, but violin making school took years. So was this the only thing you were doing for those years? For three years. I, I would do an occasional gig on, 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 a, on weekends. Um, and, uh, you know, I discovered something very interesting, which is true not only for me, but for most people who work at a, a, a craft like violin making, which is, the longer and farther away you are from your bench, the harder it is to pick up your tools again. So, so these 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 
forays, which gave us uh, food money, um, took took a price on uh, on my schoolwork. <laughs> How long would you have to be away from your schoolwork for it to have a negative effect? It it wasn't. It, it didn't matter how long it, uh, it it mattered at least as much as how far away in distance it, i went um you know i'd go for a saturday and a sunday usually but it might be a friday night and a saturday or a friday night and a saturday and a sunday but it, you know uh, it, except when school wasn't in session um but uh it, it, it's it's kind of uh, interesting, the toll it took. Okay, let's say I wanted to go to violin school. Is it like a regular school? I apply, it starts in September, it runs through June. I mean, they have classes. What's it like? It's kind of like that. Uh, uh, you apply and they start in September. Um, the t My teacher was... Uh, a brilliant violin maker named Chuho Lee, who had graduated from uh, the state school in Germany, uh, which is a very famous school. Uh, I think it's in Mittenwald, Germany, and or near Mittenwald. And he um, he would call everyone around and show them the next thing he wanted them to do. Uh, and then you would go and try and do it. Um, but it's, there were some interesting aspects to that. My, I, I arrived late. I had some gigs to tie up. And um, so I had to try and catch up. But that was very hard. The first job I was given was to uh, make linings for the uh, inside of the violin to enlarge the uh, area where the glue would hold the top and the back on. There were small strips that would go around. So the first thing you have to do is uh, plane them to uh, uh, the right thickness. Well, I had a plane, but that's not it. In order to plane them to a given thickness, you had to sharpen the plane. And, in, and that's not easy. And to sharpen the plane, first you had to grind it. And then once you had ground it and sharpened the, the, the thing enough, getting a real sharp point is really not easy. Uh, then you have to, you, you're not ready yet. You have to flatten the sole of the plane. So, so there was a lot of that in violin making school. In order to take the next step forward, you frequently had to take a few backwards. Um, so uh, anyhow, I, you know, I I learned. Um, okay, so you were in school. How many other people were in class with you? And their goal must have really been making a living, you know, making violins. Some of them wanted to make violins, and some of them just wanted to repair violins. Uh, there must have been approximately 25 other students in the classroom. And uh, some were really good and some were not. I was amongst the not. Okay. 
so you graduate yeah, and so. it, where along the line do you decide that you want to open up your own violin shop when i moved from chicago to wilmington it just seemed like that was the thing i should do uh i don't remember deciding it neither does nancy it just was the next thing is opening the shop why'd you move to wilmington we couldn't handle another uh chicago winter okay and at what point in this story do you have a child well i i have two children and i uh, uh they both came uh when i was living in chicago so you had the pressure of taking care of the children while you're working on the weekends while you're making violins and the violin shop, did you buy it or did you start from scratch? Well, we really started from scratch. Uh, we made an arrangement uh, with the city um, to, to buy a building. And um, they didn't give me any money, uh, which some of the people in the town thought they had, which I found out later is usually part of these deals, but it wasn't part of mine. Uh, um, and uh, the repairs cost more than I ever thought I would use to buy a house. Uh, but I owned the whole building and uh, opened uh, the shop on the ground floor, street level. So and you lived upstairs? There. Lived upstairs. Mom and pop. Okay, so how do you make a business out of a violin store? Well, you know, that's... That's what the city asked me. Uh, what's your business plan? I said, to sell violins. And, and they were very unhappy with that. You know, they told me all <laughs> the things that, that, that one has to do. And I said, I cannot tell you how many violins I will sell in any given month. I have no idea. Nor do I know for how much they will be sold for. Because violins are not all the same price. As a matter of fact, everyone is different. You know, it's, it's a strange little business. Um, but we got through it. Okay, so you open your store. What do you do for inventory? Um, I bought things uh, from the Chinese importers uh, to for the for the trade that we had to begin. Uh, uh, in the beginning, people were only interested in getting something cheaply. And the Chinese violin factories are the best factories on, that have ever existed on the face of the earth. They make un unbelievable instruments at a very low price. So that was satisfying to learn about that. Um, and I bought things, and I bought things that were too expensive for our current clientele but i figured if i didn't buy them i would never sell them and it's much nicer to have beautiful things around uh so i would go to auctions um i had been doing that um already for years uh, when i lived in chicago um i actually made most of my living uh as a wholesaler of violins N not that i sold 
seven at once. I, I, I sold one at a time of different violins. I would go to Europe and I would buy in Europe and bring things back and sell them. And on the way, I'd stop at the auctions. I might sell some at the auctions and buy some at the auctions. Um, and I learned an awful lot from doing that. Um, I'd go to first to uh, Paris and uh, sometimes to uh, Belgium, sometimes to Germany, and, and then to London where the auctions were, and then, and then home. And, you know, I, I, I didn't recall this when you were asking me about how I performed. You know, I didn't perform that much. Most of my living was from, uh, from buying uh, and selling violins. And the, uh, the, the uh, violin shops in, uh, in Chicago appreciated that I would buy from one shop and sell to another because not everyone likes the same thing. And the head of one shop couldn't spare his time, literally, to go out and look over somebody else's inventory. So I would come to their shop with something that I found that I thought was good, and I, you know, I, I learned. Okay, so when you have your shop in Delaware, how much inventory do you have at one time? I never counted it. I mean, hundreds, 40? Um, I might have as little as 40 really good fiddles and maybe uh, maybe 50 uh, Chinese fiddles. Uh, and then the inventory expanded uh, in, with the nice fiddles. Um, it, did, it didn't expand with the Chinese fiddles until I... Uh, turn the shop over to the guys that worked in it with me. I don't run the shop any longer. So what would be the upper price range of some of the violins you sold? That I actually sold or that I still have uh, that are worth a lot of money? <laughs> that you actually sold? Ah. Uh, well, I sold one for 35000 Okay, so at this point, you don't own the shop anymore, correct? Right. When did you stop owning the shop? Uh, the first of, the, of this year. Oh, so just very recently. Yeah, that's right. I didn't sell it. I turned it over to the guys. Okay. And they, they still have a lot of my instruments that they are selling. Okay, so... How much of your business and your particular work went into repair? None. None of my work. Uh, the guys in the back room, they, they, they made their living mostly from repairs. And what's the retail on a Chinese violin? Um, it depends on the quality. It usually starts around $1,000. Okay, so the kids who are playing violins in school, where are they getting their violins? I don't know where some of them got. There There were some $800 fiddles, the 700, and then some of the fractional violins were cheaper. Um, I, I didn't like handling the very cheapest things because then you have to repair them. And 
repairing cheapest things is not like repairing a really fine instrument. It's a trial. And I, I didn't want to load that on the guys. I, did, I could have started a rental business and I, you know, that's really uh, meatball repair, I think. But strangely enough, the guys are doing that now from my shop, from what used to be my shop. So what makes a Stradivarius so good? Stradivarius instruments, uh, his violins, because he made more than violins. He, he made also uh, bows cellos, uh, violas, guitars, and probably some other instruments. But his violins uh, stood out from others because in a, in a large concert hall, which were just beginning to be used when Stra uh, in Stradivari's day, uh, it could be heard at the back of the, uh, of the hall without sounding loud right in front of it. That's what made them desirable. Uh, and placed them above uh, most other instruments. There's there's some interesting things about the competition between modern violins and uh, and the old masters. Um, every time that there's a, uh, a competition, blindfold competition, the modern violin makers win, and. Um, I used to think, okay, it depends on how they're set up and who's playing them and, and all that. But there was one recently that really impressed me where, where the owners of some fine violins even played their own violins, but they were bl blindfolded and they might not recognize them as their own. They all picked the modern ones. Uh, and it was not a question of set up or anything like that because they were set up for these players or for one of these players. And so if you were going to get one of these modern violins, what's the retail price on that? It, 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 there's a wide margin. I mean, if, if, if you buy a, a, a violin that was made in a violin making school, it's going to cost uh, maybe $2,000. Uh, if you buy it from uh, Sam Zygmatovich in, in Brooklyn, one of his violins, it's going to cost you six figures. And uh, they're wonderful violins. They're worth it. So he makes uh, them himself? He makes them himself in Brooklyn. Uh, How many violins can he make in a year? I don't really know. You know, uh, People run at different speeds, and it, it was never something that interested me to find out. Okay, so you're running the violin shop for two decades. To what degree are you personally playing at that time, or do you lay all your instruments down? When I started the shop, um, I hadn't picked up a guitar in quite a while, and uh, my playing had completely collapsed. And I decided I wanted to improve it, so I went to some uh, jam sessions. And I originally went to a jam session with uh, people whose skill was not beyond me. Uh, you know, people who were also trying to build their chops uh, from pretty 
you know, not not from an advanced place. And uh, then I, after a year or so, I was able to go to better jams. And um, I had been asked by the mayor of uh, Wilmington to help bring back live music in Wilmington. Uh, and he told me the street that I lived on and my shop is on used to have live music all up and down it. Well, I'm not a club owner or a booker or any of that. I figured the only thing I could do is start some uh, jam sessions uh, right on uh, Market Street. And I did. And some really fine musicians would hear about them and come. So I started playing with some really great musicians again. And I started enjoying it again. So I decided to go back on the road. So when you decided, you basically say a 22-year sabbatical, so that's the beginning of this century, um, how much you're working in the violin shop and how much you're working on your own career? It was mostly in the violin shop. Uh, my own career, the violin shop takes place during the day and my career takes place at night. So uh, I was able to do both at once. Sometimes I'd have to travel for a few gigs and uh, the guys could uh, keep the shop going. It wasn't a problem. You see, my, my function in that shop um, was to write appraisals and to buy and sell, to know what is what, what's real, what's a forgery. And I was sometimes very, very good and sometimes very, very bad at it. But uh, that's kind of the way it goes. Well, at some point, when you get back in your career, you're making albums, you know, you're from the exterior, you're back into it. Was it really that you were making and buying and selling violins and appraising violins, and this was more of a hobby, or was it chewing up more of your time? I think, um, I think I was in the violin shop until I wasn't. Okay, so tell me more about these. Uh, so you're at the Beacon, and it's a series of shows. No, it's one show. One show. That's what I thought. Okay. My last. And is that and is that the final show or is there a tour thereafter? Um, there is no tour planned thereafter. I understand that one should never say never. So I'm not saying never, but as it looks now, that's probably the last one I'll do. Okay. And what are your emotions about it? I'm gonna miss the guys. Um, and I might come to miss, uh, performing, but I, I don't know, you know, those 22 years, that hiatus I took, uh, I, I never yearned to get back on stage. So, you know, I can give things up better than most people. Uh, I don't think I'm going to have a problem. Okay. So you take a very large band on stage. What's the generation of that? I used to perform with um, a band 
just a little smaller than what I'm going to have on stage. I used to perform with a uh, a quintet um, plus two horns. And uh, the, these days I've been mostly performing with a quintet, but occasionally I do big band gigs uh, where I hire not two but three horns and three singers. And uh, for this gig, we're going to have a keyboard player who um, recorded our last record with us. But I mean, before that, he'd show up at gigs and we wouldn't rehearse. He knew all the tunes. He knew them cold. And he's a member of the band. His name is Dan Walker, and he's a brilliant player. And right now, he is out with uh, Ann Wilson of Heart. And okay. uh, uh, he asked her for the night off because he's on tour with her. And she very graciously gave him the night off So to play with her. If you're playing with this many players, are you making money or are you losing money, generally speaking? This is a one-off, this gig. I understand, and this is the final gig. But before this, you're taking out multiple players, maybe not 10, but seven. Do the numbers no. work with seven? No, seven was in the 70s. Okay. So in the gigs prior to this one, how many people would go out? Five, including myself, and six, including the road uh, manager, the uh, tour manager. And with five people, you're making money? I made enough. How many? How big were these gigs? How many? What was the size of the halls you were playing? I played halls of different sizes in different cities. You know, if I'm going to play in uh, uh, San Francisco, I'm going to play a large room, uh, if, or New York, uh, or New Jersey. But in some parts of the country, uh, I have to settle for a smaller room. And you're going to have special guests at this final show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very excited about that. And can you reveal who those are? I can reveal one of the two is Jeff Tweedy. And, uh, Do you know Jeff Tweedy? How does he end up being on the show? It's kind of a funny story. Um, he was one of the first people I thought of. Uh, I did some years ago... Uh, a festival, an indoor festival in Chicago. And uh, I was coming off the stage to my dressing room, and Jeff Tweedy was, was doing the same. He was a little bit ahead of me. And I called out ahead of him. I said, Jeff, and he turned around. I said, we should play together sometime. And he said, yeah. And that was the end of it. So uh, I was recently on a tour ship, uh, on a cruise ship called Kayamo, and uh, I was backstage having just come off, uh, being about to go on again, and, and Jeff came off the stage, and uh, when he got to where I was, he pointed at me, he said, David Bromberg. I said, yeah. He said, I, I, I got to tell you, when you called to me backstage in Chicago, I was astounded that you knew who I was. <laughs> I said, I said, I was convinced you you didn't have an, any idea who I was. And uh, uh, so we both laughed about that. And we decided, yes, we have to play together. Okay, so we, he'll be playing at the final gig. Just backing up over your 60-year time in the music business, are you the type of person 
who makes and keeps relationships, or are you more like Forrest Gump bumping into things? I'm probably more like uh, uh, Forrest Gump, but not completely. As I told you, in in my business, when you bump into somebody after no matter how many years, you can pick up your last conversation. Well, I mean, let me put it a different way. People who are not stars or not named performers, which you ultimately became when you signed your deal with Columbia, and they're making a, a living playing with other people, they're heavy networkers, most of them. And they have a group of people, they're calling them all the time because they're looking to work. Was that your experience before you had your record deal? Well, there were, there were a couple of instances like that, but it wasn't common. You know, there there was a, a, a coffee house in uh, uh, in Michigan uh, called the Ark, and and the people who ran that would call me themselves, and you know I'd speak to them and I'd go do it. But after after a certain amount of time, I had managers and agents. And they got me okay. A I'm lot talking more about gigs. actually. Bef- I'm talking about more before that. Yeah, that's a long time ago. Before that is a very long time ago. I mean, let's put it this way: you're in Wilmington, okay? People, well, people come into the store, so you end up having a socialization there. Let me jump ahead. So you sold the store. You're going to have the final gig. What are you going to do with your time? Well, first of all, I did not sell the store. When you gave the store away, I I I turned it over to the guys. Yes. Uh, um, And um, I have, uh, I don't have it all any longer, but um, I had the largest collection of uh, good violins made in the United States that there's ever been. Uh, At one point, it was up to 263 instruments. That's a lot of violins, and um, uh, now I'm the now I'm selling them uh, mostly to colleagues, to people who have their own stores, and uh, I'm making sure I have photographs before I let one out of the building, because I'm going to do a book. So that's going to take a while. Okay, so. Just going back to that story, if you have 263 violins, to what degree were people calling you up from across the country or the world saying, hey, you know, I want something. It looks like you got something I got, as opposed to people in Wilmington. I got um, calls uh, very frequently. I I couldn't say how frequently. It it wasn't quite once a week, most weeks. Um, But, uh, you know, every week or two, uh, I'd get a call from a colleague um, who who wanted to know the value of an American violin he had. And they they would seldom put it in those terms, but that's what it boiled down to always. Uh, And with my collection, I became the world's expert in violins made in the United States. It's very embarrassing to pat myself on the back like that, but it if you ask any violin dealer who knows about American violins, you'll hear my name. Uh, 
so uh, I would also get calls from people who had an American violin that they inherited and they wanted to sell them. What's the most you ever paid for a violin? Probably around $15,000. Okay, so let's assume you buy a violin for 15000 What could you then sell it for? Well, that's the key. I wouldn't buy it for fifteen if I didn't think I could sell it for a good profit. I cannot right. remember one specifically that I paid that much for, but I think that's about the tops. If not, then it would be 10 or 12. But it would vary from instrument to instrument. These, Every one of them is different. And every one of them, even by the same maker, is different. Uh, he finished this on a good day. He finished this on a bad day. Um, he had a lot of assistants working on this one, but this one is all, as far as I can see, his work. You know, this this is a really, this is a business of one-offs, aside from factory violins. And even those are different one to another. Okay, so if it's like a $10,000 you pay, your goal would be 100% markup? What would your goal be? I realize every deal was different, but if you're bothering to buy a violin, how much more would you hope to sell it for? How much do I like it? That's going to determine whether I buy it or not. And I don't have a rule of, well, I got I to gotta double my money. First of all, with really good violins, the better you get, the, the, the lower the proportion uh, percentage right. of profit it is. Uh, um, so, you know. Was the store ever broken into? No. And generally speaking, when people came in to buy an expensive violin, did they know what they were looking for, or did you basically have to tell them, you want this, this is the one you want? I never told people this is the one you want. They have to decide for themselves. The violins are, are per personal things, and so are the bows, which, by the way, can get extremely valuable. Um, the way uh, I would work it is the way most shops, to my knowledge, work it. You have to find out, give me an idea of your budget. And I'll show you things within your budget, and uh, I would never show anything more expensive to drag them up, although some shops do that. Um, I'd always find things within or below their stated budget. So you're living in Wilmington. You ever meet Joe Biden? Yeah. I met him right in front of my store one afternoon. What were the circumstances? What was your experience? Well, at the time, he was the vice president, and uh, we shook hands, and I told him that was my store, and I don't remember if we said it any more than that. You know, it was just a little hello, and I had a, I had a store in his hometown. What, well, he was just walking down the street, or he was doing a campaign event? I think there might have been a parade that day, and he was out to see it is my guess. But, you know, I really don't know. Okay. If you had to do it all over again, and I can tell you're the type of guy who feels it had to play out the way it did, would you have gone to violin making school? Would you have opened the shop, taken this hiatus? What would you have done? 
depends who I am. I've been different people at different times in my life. You know what I mean? I always yeah, named absolutely. David Bromberg. Yeah. So it depends who I am uh, when I'm asked to make that decision. And what are your kids up to? Well, my daughter lives in Wilmington, and she is a very well-trained nanny. Um, she she knows all of the concussion protocols and the broken, you know, what to do with a child who hurts them. She's really very skilled at that and re at relating to the children. She loves them, and that's that's her her, her work. My son uh, is a real anomaly. My son lives in Paris with his wife and two children. Um, and he is the only person I know who gets paid for poetry, writing poetry. Um, do you know anybody who gets paid for writing poetry? No, I don't. Mary Carr, uh, maybe one. Who? Mary Carr. Ah, okay. Well, I don't know Mary Carr, but I know Jacob. And, um, but even so as remarkable as it is you don't get you don't get paid much for it um he does a lot of translating uh french to english for museums and uh he has worked as uh for different organizations as the as the organizer of their conventions um so he he does a, a variety of things Okay, David, I think we've covered it here, and I want to thank you to, for taking the time to speak with my audience. It, it's been my pleasure, and uh, it's nice to talk to an interviewer who's done his research. I, I'm very happy to have met well, you. Well, know, as I say, I've lived through your whole career from afar, you know, seeing you in the pages of, as I say, when you stop to make violins, that's something, you know, that was out of uh, deviated from the norm and it was very interesting to me and i'm glad we got to cover it in any event till next time this is bob left sense Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. 
What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.